0: Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, conversations with talented individuals from the arts, theater, radio, voiceover, music, film, and more. Today's guest is certainly someone whose take on the arts has meant so much to listeners and viewers over the years. Her name is Joyce Kulhawick, best known as the Emmy Award winning arts and entertainment critic for WBZ-TV from 1981 to 2008. Right now, Joyce is an active arts critic and advocate, a motivational speaker, and a cancer crusader. She's president of the Boston Theater Critics Association, a member of the Boston Society of Film Critics, and Boston Online Film Critics Association. In our podcast, we'll be talking about a lot of her activities, including the work co-hosting syndicated movie review programs with the legendary Roger Ebert and Leonard Malton. You can find out more about Joyce at her website, joyceschoices.com. This is going to be my treat. I'm sitting down with a, an old friend and colleague. She's not old.
1: An old friend?
0: <laughs> I take that back. I would normally do a take to you You're friend,
1: absolutely correct.
0: A friend of many, many, many months. <laughs> many months. <laughs> Joyce School haywick is here. Certainly the the name you think of when you think of the arts and entertainment in Boston and actually throughout much of the country. And it's so nice to welcome you here and to be on the other side, to allow you to answer a few questions for a Thank change. Thank you,
1: Jordan. Happy to be here. Really Great. thrilled. You're such a doll.
0: Your schedule these days... Uh to keep up with you would require an Olympic gymnast or sprinter. You're very busy. What's your day like? What's a day oh, well, like?
1: every single day is different, but my day starts with me sitting at a computer uh, looking at the hundreds of emails that I get every day from all kinds of people, either pitching uh, arts events or actors or movies or theater, or people have questions about health and cancer because I'm a three-time cancer survivor, or people want somebody to host something, or... Uh, I, I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and so I try to sort that out, and my schedule's like a jigsaw puzzle, but it's at my disposal, so I have no regular schedule, but I host and MC, and I speak, and I'm the president of the Boston Theater Critics Association right. and review movies and theater and run my website. It's a lot of stuff.
0: Your brand is so hot and popular, and you've been at this for many years. Now, you obviously had TV Decades of TV behind you. But when that ended, and it ends for everybody eventually, you were able to continue and actually almost recreate yourself in in this world without TV.
1: You know what's interesting is that the community, and I would say specifically the arts community – never let me go. Hmm. There are very few voices, I think, for the arts out there. And when all the outlets started to dry up for arts broadcasting, arts news, I mean, it isn't just television. There are no arts and entertainment reporters, critics on TV anymore, with the exception of Jared Bowen. Thank God for Jared Bowen on WGBH, Mm -hmm. but it's not a regular appearance on a regular nightly newscast. So when that dries up and then you've got newspapers cutting back on their critics and all of their arts reporting and adding more sections on food and sports and lifestyle – you have a whole community of artists who have no way to get out the in, the extraordinary wealth of that community, hmm. all of the arts and entertainment going on in Boston. So I remained a very vocal outlet, and I have a website, and I speak, and I host an MC.
0: Joyce's Choices.
1: Joyce'sChoices.com. <laughs> and I always forget to pitch that myself.
0: Well, I'll do it for you. Choices dot Joyce'sChoices.com. It rhymes. It just rolls off the tongue. You got you it. You know, it's interesting. We are living... Living, I believe, and I, I live downtown now, I'm very lucky to be in the city, we are living in probably the golden age of arts and entertainment in Boston. When when I was starting out in the broadcasting business, theater was on its downward spiral. Uh, just everything, our, our dance troupes, our opera, everything has really been bolstered. And yet, isn't it ironic that uh, the mainstream media, quote-unquote, locally has not paid attention?
1: Absolutely. The arts, arts Boston, which is a huge arts calendar in, in town, um, did a study called the Arts Factor about three or four years ago. Mm. And they took a look and tr- started to quantify arts and entertainment in greater Boston and discovered that we have more arts and culture per square inch than any other major metropolitan area in the country, more than New York City. This means anywhere you throw a rock, you're going to hit an artist, a mime, a, you know, an actor. Well, the someone. mime won't make any noise <laughs> when you hit him. That's Exactly. Or a cultural organization. It is huge, adds millions, hundreds of millions of dollars mm. to the economy, provides jobs. So it's a it's a fuel for the economic engine. But we have s- never been able to really corral this as a force in In the city. And there is a grassroots organization now called Mass Creative. And they, over the last five years, has started to do this, tried to show the impact that the arts have. But yes, as the arts have exploded, coverage has dwindled. Mm. And this is... Remarkably and eternally frustrating for the arts community.
0: And yet, uh, I'll say it again, Joyce's Yes. You found a spot uh, on a beautiful landscape uh, on the Internet where people can come and on demand get what they want. It's growing. It's not as perhaps as immediate as the television thing used to be. But it's very, I think, exciting. We're we're alive at a time when we can reach people in a new way. That's
1: true. I mean you can reach all kinds of um, niches of people who think like you and also people who don't think like you. I really miss the platform television because it was huge, it was centralized, and it was visual – um, it's harder for me to adapt to online because it's mostly written, mm-hmm. uh, although it can be visual. But, you know, I haven't got a camera crew, but I guess I've got a phone. I don't know. What can I say? I don't want to go out and shoot this stuff on my phone. You don't need to do that. Yeah. You know, your, I really, your writing
0: speaks for itself. Yeah.
1: I, well, it does. Yeah. But I do miss the ability to look into a camera. And talk to people directly and know that they're out there and that that you can sort of leap right through the screen. It's very direct contact. I miss it. I think we need it back.
0: You're one of, I'm going to say this, of one of the most respected critics I know of. And you've had so many experiences, you know, critiquing everything from theater to, to Broadway shows to uh, dance and, of course, movies.
1: And red carpet stuff covered the Oscars, oh. the Emmys, the Tonys. The, you know, I mean, just all that. That was just I can't even believe I did have these things.
0: My question has always been, do critics, in in terms of their writing and experiences, evolve based on life? In other words – Oh, absolutely. Would you see a movie when you're 25 or 35 and then see the same movie 10 years later – Because of what's gone on in your own life or anybody else's life. That's the basic question. How evolution in criticism occurs.
1: Absolutely. I'm a much better critic now than I was 30 years ago for all the reasons you just named. I know more. I have more experience. I don't have the recall I used to have, but I have an insight and just more of a wealth of experience to draw on so I can interpret what's going on out there. And if the film is worthy, you know, if there's if there's more there, I will see it. I might not have seen it when I was 30. I see it now that I'm in my 60s.
0: It's the frame of reference that I love when I'm reading criticism, and that goes for you, of course, that – You're referring to something that's in front of us on the screen or on the stage, but then you're bringing in reference points that I can identify with. I think that's why I've always elevated critics and some of our sports columnists to the best writers in the papers because they really do focus on things. Because it's it's one thing to say, ah, this movie's – You know, long and overdrawn. That's that's not
1: a criticism. You know, like, I liked it, I didn't like it, it was too long. No, a real good critic is not just going to tell you how they feel, they're going to tell you why they feel that way, and they're going to analyze the work and show how all the parts do or don't work together to arrive mm. at the whole. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the best critics there ever was was David Brudnoy. Yeah. And I asked him once, so what do you do? How do you do it? And he said, you know, the first thing I look at is does this thing accomplish what it sets out to do? If it's a scary movie, was I frightened? If it was a mm-hmm. comedy, did it make me laugh? So that's the first step. And then the next step is how did it achieve that? And if it didn't, when were you pulled out? When did it fail?
0: It so sounds so simple, and yet it's brilliant it's I sat in the movie once with Brodnoy years ago. Remember the movie Zelig with uh, oh yeah, Woody with Allen? Woody
1: Allen He turned up everywhere
0: <laughs> and uh we were actually it was a different movie. We were talking about Zelig, which had just opened, and a lot of people had knocked zelig and uh and Brodnoy said uh well it was it was only one joke, and people said it's only one joke over and over again, you know he appears in all these characters. And I had the best line. He said, it was one joke, but it was a hell of a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I remember. You know, I I, I can't imagine how daunting it must have been to be a local star, as you have been, but then to be launched into a national spotlight with Roger Ebert. And I'd love to know what that was like, because Joyce Kulhawick took over the mantle uh, of Siskel and others who had worked with this giant, and you were all of a sudden national.
1: Yeah, it was really... I'm going to say that was my best professional moment for a critic who made her living on TV to sit with the best movie critic in the country on TV, to be asked by him to share that seat and go thumb to thumb with him. <laughs> that was I could barely believe what I was doing. What was the
0: process? How did you get that?
1: You know what? I got a call out of the blue. I had been watching these people who were filling in. This was after after Siskel and Ebert had really established this extraordinary chemistry and brand, and then Gene Mm. Siskel died. Mm. And they were looking for a replacement. Now, there's no way anybody could really replace that chemistry, but – Roger needed to continue, wanted to continue. He needed a partner. They tried out a number of people. I remember saying to my producer, looking at them on the air, none of those people are really that good. I bet I could do that. And it was one of those fleeting thoughts. I swear, two weeks later, someone who had used to work at BZ also now worked with Roger called me. They said, wow. we want you to fly into Chicago and just sit with him. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> I sat with him. I prepared like crazy. Yeah. We covered three or four movies. We got all done. And the entire studio, all the cameramen and all the people in the control room applauded. It was amazing. They said that is the first time we saw anybody be able to do anything with Roger in such, such a uh, an engaging way. I yeah. mean, it's. It, I was flabbergasted, and Roger, to his oh, eternal credit, mm-hmm. was so not an egomaniac. This is a guy who could have been very dismissive of a local TV critic. He was all about the movie. It wasn't about him or his opinion. When we sat and we talked about movies, it was really about the mm. give and take of the film because he loved movies as much as I love movies. No good movie is too long. No bad movie is too short. <laughs> That's an Ebert quote. He we just celebrated his birthday a couple of days yeah. ago. The late the late great.
0: I've read his books. I've I've saw the documentary about his last days. Oh. Which was touching and heartbreaking, and and also inspiring. And
1: I'm in touch with his wife, Chaz. Uh, oh, who's a gem.
0: But She's I, 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 it was such a kick to know you and to see you on the national spotlight. Yeah. We were so everybody was proud of that. And uh, how long did you actually do that gig?
1: I host co-hosted on and off with him for about a year. Yeah. And uh, it was a very interesting thing, but it came down to me and another person. And uh, I did not want to move to Chicago and offered to fly back and forth because I was still on WBZ at I the time. Remember, yeah. BZ gave me leave to go and do this. They thought it enhanced my brand, his, you know, yeah. all of that. Chicago was never going to be my town. Boston was always going to be my town. And I, I was already 48 years old, almost 50 years old mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. So I did not want to reinvent my life there and thought, oh, well, we could. We could go for this. I then subsequently – he chose the other person, Richard Roper. Right. Um And I subsequently found out that one of the big problems there was that I was a woman. And the production company did not want a woman in that seat. And I found that out 10 years later mm. from someone very
0: close to mm. the source. Well, um, it, it's gratifying. So you never
1: know the ways in which – uh, you know, being a, a woman oh, sure. has held you back. Sure. And oh. I would have said, oh, it never, bo- it never got in my way. You don't know.
0: It, it's interesting in our industry, broadcasting, uh, which is so public in a way, because <laughs> what we do is we broadcast. So much of this attitude has prevailed. And hopefully it's finally starting to, with the Me Too and all the other movements, it's finally starting to to be dug out and, and done away with, but it has been a prevailing thing. When you were working in television during the heyday, really the 70s and 80s when you were...
1: <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry.
0: I was around in the 70s and 80s. I well, just, I
1: actually, I started in 78 on Evening Magazine, but I actually got into the newsroom in 1981. Okay. The first arts and entertainment reporter in the country to report on a nightly newscast with... with that became new sports, weather, and arts and entertainment. There's no
0: Google at this point. There's oh, no, no cell phone. Everyone was glued to the TV. There were three
1: stations, and, 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 and I was on one of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I always wondered this, and then I found out because I used to work at the same place. How did you do a review at 11 o'clock? from a show that just broke at ten fifty Oh,
1: by the seat of my pants. I had to be. Honestly, I was so terrified <laughs> a lot of the time. I remember calling a friend of mine when this first started in the first year and a half, two years. I said, I think I'm going to die from this job. I don't see how I can keep up this pace. I'd come in at 10 or 11 in the morning and not leave till midnight that day. Mm. And finally, they pulled me aside and said, you cannot keep this up. And I, But I had tons of energy and I was you know in my late 20s we all have tons sure. of energy then but i it was scary and I just had to focus mm-hmm. and people have said to me you know subsequently "Yo, oh, wow so glamorous to be in TV you know did they have hair and makeup and all that and I'm thinking hair and makeup are you kidding me no, I'd I, be running down the hall <laughs> with my script in one hand my mascara in the other hoping I could get you know my lipstick on in time to sit on the seat and be coherent yes, yeah, for yeah. two minutes and
0: it's amazing amazing to watch you and, and and Bob Lobel, who's another friend of mine. as oh, he's as a as doll. Yours, to see how it all comes together. Like when that light goes on, it's just like showbiz. Here we go. we got to be ready. Oh,
1: and you can't be late. You I mean, can't be late. That, you had to make that deadline no matter what. I remember sitting in a taxi. Writing, of course, all the way from the theater to the back door of WBZ, calling ahead and saying, this is going to be really close. I'm going to have to fly in there, throw the tape at somebody, and you're going to have to cue it up to this scene, and I'm going to run out on the set, and we're going to hope it all goes off.
0: That's the worst feeling in the world when you say, oh, my God, I hope I cued it up to the right place.
1: Well, right, and then you... You say, and here's the tape, <laughs> and you hope it's there.
0: Yeah, and 99 yeah. times out of 100, it is there. There's and- a
1: scene in broadcast news where Holly Hunter's running down oh, yes, the hallway, and they're handing this tape off from person to person to person to person, and that's no joke. That's no lie. That scene is true.
0: And I still do the bit with the jacket that – uh you know that you're supposed to do when oh, you have a right, when you right, have right. a sport coat. Take pull them, the pull the back down. Right. <laughs> Based on broadcast news, well, another uh, aspect of your career that's as I think is a specialty art. Not many people do it, and certainly don't do it well. And we talked about this prior to coming on the air today. And that is sitting down with a celebrity at say Symphony Hall on a couple of soft armchairs, and just talking about their life, and in a sense sharing a conversation with three thousand people. Talk a little bit about that because that's a unique art form that very few people get a chance to do.
1: It is It is very unique, and I think it's the hardest thing to try to do. I don't think I'm particularly good at that. I mean, I, sometimes I think it works for me. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm a much better talker in my own little space. But you're <laughs> right. You have to establish an immediate rapport with somebody. Um, ideally, you've really, really prepared. The thing you have to figure out how to do is to then let all the preparation go Mm. so that you can have a spontaneous and organic conversation with someone that's real.
0: And you're dealing with mega celebrities. And you mentioned Steve Martin was one example. Oh, gosh. I've read a lot about him. I've seen him in in concert. He's brilliant. But I also know he's he's a comedian and he's neurotic and all that. You know, it's all – you know, written down that he's like this. So what is it like prior to going on stage with a Steve Martin?
1: I had to do a a conversation, a two-hour conversation with Steve Martin on stage at the Hanover Theater in Worcester. Mm -hmm. It all went off just fine, but it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. I had a whole plan, and I said, Steve, we'll start with this. We'll go to this. We'll go to this. And he said, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we got out there, and he took the whole thing, (laughs) and he said— Ask me about this, and I said, "Well, okay." I got one good joke off, though. I really did. You did, had, yeah, I did. This was this was probably one of the best moments ever. We had a picture of him with that arrow going through his head up right. on the thing, and I Crazy said, well, "What was going through your head when this was taken?" <laughs> <laughs> the audience erupted, That's and a I thought, great
0: "Line line of the day."
1: I had no idea if that joke would land or would just sound stupid, and, and
0: you killed with it.
1: Yeah, and he laughed, but he. Every time I tried to get him to talk about, he said, no, let's do that," and and it ended up playing is very funny, but there was no there was no guiding him, and who the heck wants to guide Steve Martin? There
0: there are other people though who don't usually do interviews at all, and I'm wondering if that's an even more daunting and challenging issue. You you interviewed Marnie Nixon when the Pops did West, uh, West oh, Side she Story. She was and lovely, and Obviously, what a beautiful the voice lady, and I've, behind
1: uh, West Side Story right. and all these. Big actress. and I remember couldn't sing. I remember
0: interviewing her as well. Lovely lady, but have, have there been interviews where you go in thinking, "Oh, it's going to be great," and then, "Oh my God, it's like pulling teeth." You can't; they they just clam up on you. Has Has anyone? Have you had that experience?
1: I know I've had that experience, and I'm just trying to think. I mean, I've I've had a few interviews go horribly awry. <laughs> 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 I once accidentally insulted John Travolta.
0: Well, accidentally?
1: Yeah, accidentally. I used a terminology that set him off. Uh, (laughs) It was when he was doing the movie Perfect, and his career was starting to Mm. skid a little bit, and he had a couple of flops. And uh, so my question to him was a very innocent question about how he navigates a world where you can have great success followed by big failure. And I said, so you've had some fabulous successes and some some bombs. Well, the word bomb oh. set him off.
0: <laughs> all right, that was the wrong word for John. It was the
1: wrong word. Not a it,
0: word he wants to hear this week either as we tape this.
1: Absolutely.
0: Gaudi going down the chute oh, big time.
1: Is it? You know, I haven't seen it. Is it, it a terrible?
0: barely made a million bucks its oh, opening weekend. So. It's too bad.
1: But, you know, I mean, but this is the business we're all in, yeah. actually, you know, when you're a performer. So my question was really... About how one copes with that. How do you maintain your center? I mean, I think that's a really good question, but the way I asked it wasn't the Mm. best. I might have said something like what I just said. He got so angry. He said, bombs? There have been no bombs. And I'm thinking to myself – yeah, what about Moment by Moment with Lily Tomlin? That well, ought to be awful. But he got so angry, and I said, okay, well, let me rephrase. Well, there was no rephrasing. <laughs> I ended up saying, okay, well, I think we're done. He said, good, go, leave.
0: Oh, my goodness. And then
1: 10 years later, I talked to him for Pulp Fiction, and he totally didn't remember me. And he was on a huge comeback. Yes. And we had the best interview ever.
0: <laughs> it's amazing how that works. By the way, uh, before we uh, move on to your personal story, which is, I think, important to tell um just a little tearing back of the curtain when these junkets occur oh, hate, uh, hated them here we go the, and this i know a lot about this but the listeners might find it interesting a movie is out and let's say harrison ford is interviewed on the joyce Cole Haywick show but he's actually being interviewed the same day by 15 or 18 or 20 15,
1: try a hundred
0: okay a hundred so how how do you deal with that?
1: I hated that. <laughs> These junkets – and Warren Beatty once said to me, they don't call them junkets for nothing. It's really just a tr- – it's a, it's a treadmill. Mm-hmm. You have five minutes if you're lucky with the person. The seat is still warm from the person who sat there in front of you. The cameras are all set up. The lights are set. It's your turn. You go in. You sit. Hello, how do you do? And you ask the questions that maybe they've heard 30 or 40 times earlier that day, and you're hoping you've got the one question or you have the one spark that they're going to respond to in a different way, and they're glazed over. It's horrifying. Yeah,
0: I've I often thought it must be really challenging to see. Maybe I can ask it in a different way. But the 10 people prior to you oh, probably thought the same thing.
1: They did. And there's always certain basic questions that one has to right, ask. Right. So, so it's tough. And I think that's initially why I was so put off by doing interviews, because it's rare that you get an opportunity to sit in a more relaxed, unique way with somebody.
0: In this town, uh, there is a handful, and I'm glad and proud to be part of this handful, of individuals who are called upon to MC various events. You've emceed everything.
1: I, actually, I really enjoy I do, too. MC. Yes, I can tell you are a master I at love
0: it. it. But I wanted to take us back to uh, uh, particular events that you and I worked together on, uh, the Daffodil Days luncheons for the American Cancer Society. Yes. I think we did 10 or 12 in oh, a row. Quite a few. And that brings me to the question, and you even you mentioned it as we opened up here, uh, being a three-time cancer survivor, a lot of people would keep that quiet. You have not. You've used your publici- your, your ability to bring publicity to the world for for good. Tell me a, a little bit about I how it's worked no out. I saw no
1: percentage in keeping that quiet. I was a public person. When I had my first bout with cancer, you know, like a cold, Mm. Uh, I was about 26, and I was on the air at that time, an evening magazine. So I had malignant melanoma, which is a very aggressive skin cancer, which we caught in time 10 days before my wedding. And yeah. yeah, and it was kind of a miracle. And then 10 years later, had ovarian cancer, and then a year and a half after that, had a recurrence of that ovarian cancer and chemotherapy and many surgeries, etc. And now that's all about 30 years in my past, so it is really a miracle. But all during that time, I was a public person on the air, knew I would be sick, might potentially lose my hair, might look awful, and didn't want to put any energy into hiding anything and was very well aware and felt very close to my my audience mm. that I wanted everyone to know and I wanted to share that. I can't even – it never even occurred to me to hide this. I think one of the things about being on TV, if if you're doing it right, is that you're really yourself – and that it's the difference between being an actor and being a person on TV, mm-hmm. that an actor inhabits other personalities and beings. A person on TV is ideally trying to always be themselves, mm-hmm. true and true. And this is this is what you try to, to relax into year after year after year. So – I could only be honestly who I was, and that helped me so much because it left me open to be the recipient of such goodwill from folks that I desperately needed to heal so that the love and good wishes that I got from so many people – who I have met subsequently over the years. I run into people who are, you know, at a grocery store or, you know, coming to service my garage or whatever, <laughs> and they say, I remember when you were sick mm-hmm. and I prayed for you or I sent you something. They're all still out there, and I owe them my life. And then when you feel well, you can give all this back.
0: Indeed. It, it does change anyone who has a disease like that, but it it particularly changes people in the public eye when you can share, it's almost like a a burden is lifted as opposed to trying to cover up. And people cover up all the time, all kinds of things. Yeah,
1: and not everybody is comfortable sharing. Right, Um right. And, and,
0: and it's no rule that you have to.
1: Exactly. And right. that's – let me be really clear about that. Everyone has to go through whatever they go through. You know, everybody's got something that they're dealing with, whether it's uh, – cancer or depression or it's uh, alcoholism or, you know, who knows? There's there's so many things that everybody bears and we all have to figure out our best path toward healing and feing, feeling well. I think it helps to always remember that we're not alone, that we come in alone and we go out alone, but uh, mm. along the way, we can have lots of company and it feels good to share our burdens with other people
0: yeah, and i I believe that it makes you better at what you do if you really accept it and deal with it the way you've dealt with it. because uh, I often felt in my own life with my own issues uh, that the empathy gene was awoken what, the idea that okay. I got to stop for a second and think about what this other person's going through, why he's so crabby today or whatever. And that's a simple way to look at it, but it really makes a difference. And your whole worldview kind of changes in that respect.
1: You know, it's a great leveler. I'm so glad you brought that up, Jordan, because – it's such a great leveler. When you're lying in a hospital bed and you don't know if you're going to live or die, you know, you're at that edge of mortality to get really serious mm. here for a moment. And, of course, we're always at that edge every day, but you're, you don't always have the gift of realizing it, and mm. that is a gift. Mm-hmm. But when you are at that raw place, it's in that place that you connect with other people because you realize we are all in that place.
0: Do you also see it in the art that you review? Yes. What, I, what I mean by that is yes. I I uh, have publicly talked about uh, my own issue with depression in the past and so forth. And I thought it very freeing when I did it on the air and, it, and I opened up all kinds of discussions. But I can look at a film or a piece of art on stage and see and connect in, in ways I never thought possible because I've sort of been there. Exactly. It, it, and does that influence you when you're not influence you, but, but is that part of the experience when you're enjoying art? Well,
1: absolutely. I mean, getting back to something you asked me earlier about, are you a better critic now, or do you look at things differently now Mm -hmm. than when you were much younger? Yes. And it's because of that life experience and the way we all get taken down a peg or two or three, that you then have this more empathic feeling about everything I mean, the arts are really about our humanity, about connecting with what's universal, about what really does lift us up about what gives us some perspective and insight about the human condition so the more experience one has the more one appreciates that the more suffering you've had you know it's a big christian theme obviously you know but it's common to lots of religions mm-hmm. that it's it's at that place where we all find our common humanity and often that's at the edge of suffering where we are the most open and vulnerable and mm. that's where we connect with other people.
0: Indeed. And and, and art has a way of connecting with our minds, our souls, our hearts. And and for some people, it's peripheral, but for others, it's deeper. Yeah,
1: if it's really art and not just a bunch of car (laughs) explosions and, you know, I mean, which is fine for a summer entertainment, but it's why I get a little bored with this stuff after all this time.
0: That's why uh, I'm thrilled that we're in the city we're in, in Boston anyway, with the theater being so lively. The ART, the American Repertory Theater, is is doing stuff that's on a national, international scale. They're premiering film uh, plays, um, the dance troupe's in town, uh, the re-emergence of the, well, now the well, box we, Center.
1: Boston Ballet is now yeah. a world-class institution. The B- and I remember, the BSO, the oh, the Boston Symphony, the Museum of Fine Arts, I mean, the the ICA. The, it's just, those are the big legacy places, but right. there's an explosion of theater Local theater. We have so many fringe and small companies that just insist on being alive. And when I say insist, these people get no help. We're talking about actors that you see in a theater that maybe there are 15 people in the audience, and maybe the actors are also working two other part time jobs. They haven't got two sticks to rub together, but they're putting on a play because they're passionate about it. They want to communicate with that. The, what the play is about, and they need an audience and. There's just this will to want to express ourselves,
0: and for you, it must be as exciting as ever I'm guessing to be part of the scene, to talk about it, to tell their stories, yes, and to bring these stories
1: it's I am to at bear. their service, I am their yeah. conduit. that's yeah. how I feel, you know as I, I try to be a supportive critic. I mean, I've got to be critical, oh, but yeah. uh but there are ways to do that, so I'm always trying to um. Support while I'm analyzing, let's put it that way. But I consider myself and have always thought of myself as a conduit for voices that are out there Mm. that are infinitely more creative than I am. I can't write a play or act in a play or perform that way. What I can be is a voice for those people and amplify what they do.
0: Now according to Wikipedia though, you do yodel. Now I don't I do. Is that true? (laughs) <laughs> you do yodel.
1: Yodel, <laughs> yodel,
0: not very well. Where does but, that you know. come from? Oh,
1: just my—I love to talk. <laughs> I love to use my voice. My mother said I spoke early and very clearly. Well, you—you
0: you certainly uh, learned at an early age how to uh, enunciate, and you're still doing it brilliantly. Uh, thank you so much for spending time and by the way uh, happy to plug again Joyce's dot com yes
1: sign up follow me on Facebook Twitter subscribe whatever I've spent no time pitching my website so thank you I'm Jordan. happy
0: to do it Joyce's Choices dot com and uh, you and I have sort of known each other now for uh, 150 many, years 150, think. 150 yeah. years and uh, i want to go for another 150 and and watch you do the brilliant things I'm you do
1: with you and i have to say <laughs> you have created such a beautiful space in which to talk jordan and that is oh, your gift that's Thank so you.
0: nice joyce Kilhawick, boston area and national treasure and we're thrilled again one more plug joyces <laughs> thanks for listening <laughs> Thank dear you. friends You've been listening to On Mic with me, Jordan Rich, a podcast produced and hosted by Chart Productions on the web at chartproductions.com. This podcast is available on Apple, Google+, Stitcher, and all other download platforms. I invite you to rate, review, download, and subscribe to this podcast. And as always, I want to thank you for listening and wish you the very best day. Peace.